0: A very common narrative that's in the startup ecosystem is that if you don't raise funding, you're not ambitious. Which I think is blatantly odd We're trying to cram up and build a great company in seven years or eight. And I think there are ridiculously few examples of that. You know, Rippenheim is a late bloomer. But, I mean, we've been doing fabulous in terms of growth numbers. But it took us a long time to figure out where the hell
1: we were going. Why is everyone talking about capital efficiency or vanity SaaS now? Over the past year, global companies have suffered huge blows to their valuation, but the ones with solid fundamentals saw the least amount of impact. We see stunning parallels in the Indian SaaS context. In our joint report with Ernst & Young, The Bellwethers of Indian SaaS, we surveyed about 140 SaaS CXOs and found that Indian SaaS is inherently capital efficient. What this means is that where the macro winds are battering the prodigals, they fail to sway the performance or growth outlook of Indian SaaS. On this podcast, we talk to founders who understand this value SaaS advantage and choose this default early on. And if you are curious about the report, you can download it from the link in the description. Hi, this is Tiag and co-founder and managing partner at Opeka Value SaaS Accelerator.
0: And this is your producer Malvika Tekta. In today's episode, Sudarshan Ravi, founder and CEO of talent acquisition platform Ripple Hire, talks about how he stayed authentic in the face of early day FOMO, what it takes to sell in a low trust market like India, and why you can't put a deadline on building a great company. And stay till the very end where Sudarshan swaps seats with Rajan and quizzes him about the most obvious way to build a business.
1: So, Sudarshan, welcome to the Value SaaS podcast, where we talk about uh, stories of entrepreneurs who have taken capital-efficient choices so that uh, they can be in control of their businesses. Hey, Adam. Thank you for having me here. Uh, My pleasure to talk to the SaaS community on this. Absolutely. So, Sudarshan, just to give uh, our audience a little bit of background about yourself, can you talk about uh, what was the origin story for uh, Ripple Hire?
0: Uh, After working with a friend on a startup in the employee engagement space and realizing that, you know, we weren't going anywhere, I kind of put my feet up in August of 2012. And I was really looking back to what are some problems that I have faced. Uh, And I realized when I was building the PeopleSoft practice at Deloitte, we went from 35 to 150 people. A big way in which we hired was through employee referrals. You know, I really thought about it and said, hey, you know, why is it that it was so uncommon for me to do that? If each employee gives one person in one year, then the way any enterprise can hire for talent can fundamentally change. And referrals are the best channel for hiring, whether it's, you know, joining ratios, retention, the fact that you distribute wealth within, it's the highest power of marketing as well, right? It's employee advocacy. So, you know, the question have one person, one Candidate, one year, took me down the rabbit hole and happy to share that today, you know, uh, like you have LinkedIn for social media and Knockree for job photos. uh Repentire is the default for employee referrals in the country. Of course, since then, we've evolved to build more products for TA, but uh, that's a little bit about us.
1: It's fantastic. So you, you're almost like a bug for uh, referrals, just like how LinkedIn is, is for uh, recruitment. Right. Absolutely. absolutely. So one question, see, this idea is, is very sound, right? You had a lot of competitors that started yeah. along with you, but uh, we don't know about any of their names. But you've been around. Why is that the case? So
0: actually, I'll tell you an interesting story. The day I was ready to launch V1, that mm-hmm. morning I came to office. I pumped, and the first thing that I saw was that whistle talk had raised, you know, almost two crores in funding. That's when I discovered, hey, there is another company. And interestingly, that week, uh, or you know, a couple of weeks later, I ran into another uh, investor who told me, there are nine companies like yours, and I have not funded a single one of them. So, uh, I don't know what you're going to do differently. What happened as a result of the fact that I was discouraged early on that there may not be funding for this, and the fact that I had a funded competitor from day one to compete with, meant that we had to really focus on what we were good at which is to provide a product that adds value to a customer. And it's an insanely hard problem to solve. Getting employees in a large enterprise, just to give you an idea, less than 1% of an enterprise today contributes. And to focus on this and to say that the right people in the enterprise need to contribute, the right folks for recruitment to then process and get closures, meant that it was an insanely hard problem to solve. One that needed longer. The second thing that I realized, right, uh, on why we are still around, is I realized that the HR tech market, at least for the first three years, everybody would look at my product and say, wow, this is like an iPhone, right? But nobody would buy or very, very few people would try. And I realized this because a lot of, every year there are 50 to 100 such companies that come up and they don't exist beyond year two or year three so when you're dealing with large enterprise they don't want to stake their stuff on something that may not exist right so that ended up also being a factor so a lot of companies even though they are very well funded the market sensitive to see whether they will exist so our growth kind of propelled after there was confidence and that also gave us patience to go figure out how to make this work um, on customer revenues than anything else
1: in the past, you've talked about uh, things like uh, like some of these com- companies had uh, ambitions which uh, led them to have like a fast growth or like you know they had a little bit of FOMO. Can you talk through that? See, I think a very common narrative that's in the startup ecosystem
0: is that if you don't raise funding, you're not ambitious, which I think is blatantly hard to do. Ambition is a function of where you want to go and how high you want to aim for. And honestly, we think we're still getting started. There is no reason why we can't be a billion-dollar revenue organization in recruitment. Simply because there aren't sufficient companies that we compete with today, especially on our talent acquisition cloud, that have billion dollars in revenue. Do we need funding to get there? Not necessarily, or we may, and we may choose to. But we definitely know that our ambition is no connection with funding. The other thing is that, you know, there are, I, I find it fascinating that there are timelines published of, you know, what you should achieve by when. We are trying to cram up and build a great company in seven years or eight.
1: And I think there are ridiculously few examples of that. D2, D3, right? You know, they expect you to do triple, triple, double, double, double. And I I literally cannot count the number of companies who've had uh, that kind of growth. But that's the Excel model or the math.
0: Well, I understand the reasons behind why that kind of model needs to be built out for showcasing fast growth. I mean, think about ecosystems, right? Like a value as an ecosystem takes 30 years to build. Right. So, if you want to build something that's totally life-changing, you have to have a long-term perspective, not a 5, 7, 10, but like 20, 30 years, right? before which you can't even claim to have uh, uh, made like a significant dent. Uh, you know, I was a late bloomer, but I mean, we have been doing you know fabulous in terms of growth numbers year and year, but it took us a long time to figure out where the hell we were going. right? And I must thank Upeka for Helping us out on the journey there. So,
1: what are some of the earliest days of FOMOs that you had?
0: Existence. Uh, so, I'll tell you fear of missing out startup conferences. Hmm. Like I felt like if I didn't attend the startup conference, I would not be in the network, or I would not, I would miss out on some learning. Till you realize, a lot of it is the same, and it's not contextually relevant. Hmm. The second aspect was on the media publications where we get talked about. Honestly, we've not done an article on your story uh, in ten years, right? Not because your story isn't great. It's just we figured out it's just not our audience, right? We don't cater to startups and you know uh, SMBs. We cater to large enterprises, and like the medium doesn't matter to us. I have the HR magazines, awards in the star- in the HR world. Uh, I discovered much later when somebody pitched an award to me and charged me money. How murky the whole deal is. So one thing that we set after going through that fear of what that would mean to take a different path, right? Where everybody else claimed, you know, either a re award or a or you know, like one of the global HR awards in India, was, you know, or would we be perceived as not being ambitious, not being successful? But, you know, somewhere it just didn't tie with our authenticity. Like, authenticity is our core values. Here. It was very difficult for us to say, we will stay authentic. We will not pay money for any awards. In fact, even now, the only awards our customers compete is, uh, you know, in that are data back and that are run by like Gartner equivalent firms in the US. Prandall Hall is the Oscar in HR. Finland and funding, uh, you know, if, when all the media narratives on how it's cool, to kind of stick your neck out and say, no, we're going to build and we're going to build this sequentially on customer revenue on long-term contracts. Well, we're on pricing, I feel like if you add value, you should charge. And, you know, because you take a responsibility to deliver value and the customer doesn't care about the charge, they care about the value you deliver. And if you take that money, it's great. I remember there was RFM competitors who came and unfortunately they shut down. They would like, we were like forty x their pricing. And they didn't care for the revenue. And I would go off to enterprises and say, you know, you're like 50,000 people. If somebody is giving you something for like, you know, peanuts, then are
1: you sure they will focus on delivering results for you? And true to point, you know, some of these things died. So You mentioned something interesting, Sudarshan. I wanted to double click on it. You said, you know, when you provide value, then you feel like, you know, you need to charge the price. I know that, you know, you you had your uh, large market base post, Indian customers. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. In general, Indian customers are considered to be very, very uh, price sensitive. Let you know, If I were to put it nicely. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you said quite the opposite. Actually, we are in a low trust economy.
0: India is inherently a low trust market and I credit you know, Kunal Shah for coining that term uh, because it just made total sense for us. What happens in a low trust space is there are people who come and promise the world. And then don't deliver. But I've realized that when you go and you take ownership for a customer outcome and you choose and sit with a customer and say, I'm going to make you successful. And here's what I need to make you successful. Customers are comfortable knowing that you're authentic, that you will deliver on what you do. And as a result, the ROI is going to be far, far more. And the fact that we work in talent acquisition where it's all a numbers game. Hence, we are able to clearly articulate the value and and honestly, DA directly impacts top line and bottom line. And the fact that we can go in and showcase that, you know, both in terms of top line impact and bottom line impact, means that when we capture a percentage of that value, people are comfortable. So, I think Indian customers are price sensitive, but they are far more value sensitive than price sensitive. If you're willing to offer something for of free, but without value, it's not like they're just going to take it. And actually a price.
1: I love that framing. Instead of uh, thinking of them as uh, price sensitive, we should think about them as value sensitive. If they are able to perceive the value, and in many cases, especially in software and when yeah. we're delivering something which is very intangible, <laughs> that part gets missed out, right? But when you're able to, like how you said, it is correlated to top line and bottom line impact, then that value is something that it is hard to overlook. And there they may be uh, willing to sort of attribute the value and then pay the price for the value that they are able to perceive.
0: But you know, Rajan, it's not just what they perceive, right? When they sign the contract, it's perception that the fact that they deliver it, there are enough players who charge but don't necessarily take ownership of delivery. And there are players who take ownership of delivery but don't charge. I figure the best of both worlds
1: works better. So uh, this is one question that I wanted to ask you because, uh, so there's a out of many people that I know, you've you, you spent the most amount of time in in the Indian market, and you've uh, done that by doing uh, the shoelathers sales. Right? You know, you go and meet folks, and then like, that's how you close deals. I'm noticing this trend that compared to five years ago to now, mm-hmm. how the Indian customers they are buying software seems to have like you know made a big change. What's your view? Oh significant difference 10 years Wait, ago no. to now or yes. 5 years ago to
0: now just 2 years ago up to now uh, of course 10 years to 5 years to 2 years but the change absolutely accelerated so so 2 things that have fundamentally altered people are comfortable building trust over online meetings they still evaluate with the same rigour but the medium of evaluation is no longer about in-person conversations of course in-person conversations and workshops build trust that Rajan, we've like sold some of our largest deals and done some of our largest transformations without ever meeting the customer during the entire COVID pandemic. Wow. And these are like not just, you know, technology organizations, right? I'm talking about banks, I'm talking about, you know, steel companies. A lot of the mindset has changed about a how technology can help as well as how technology should be bought. I'm also seeing a significant focus on people relying on references and you know, actually having detailed calls to be comfortable uh, versus just looking at checklists, which would often happen when they felt comfortable in the relationship. right? So the way they evaluate has changed a little bit. Even now, post-pandemic, though we meet people, like the number
1: of meetings in their entire deal are probably one at max two. What is the most craziest story you had working with an Indian customer in the last many years that you have worked with? I remember... Well, my most painful memory
0: was when we were literally, we needed a three lakh renewal so I could make payroll. Uh, And and as a founder, you call and I didn't have money to fly down to Bangalore to meet the customer. Uh, The outcome is I finally got the renewal. At that point, the number of attempts I had made and the requests I had made, I had to leave all my self respect at the door. I still remember how I felt that evening when I got, when I signed the renewal. Because I knew it was coming through and that I would get the money. And I knew we would be okay for that month. But the feeling was something that didn't leave me and I knew that I would never want to be in that state again. The person after the school thing that signed blocked me altogether. And I don't think anybody else has
1: blocked me yet in 10 years of existence. But yeah. So, so in. This journey, this long journey, uh, were there moments where it looked like, oh shit, this is like looking really bad, but then in retrospect, later when you reflected on it, it turned out to be a gift? There have always been moments like that,
0: right? I I remember early on going after startups and uh, shedding of SMBs, right? Uh, when you shed SMBs at some point in your journey, you realize, man, that you are letting go. You know, COVID hit. A lot of SMBs don't exist. Uh, you know, in that space, or so startups kind of moved on, or few of them took off. Few of them did not. April first, on our platform, hiring platform, the whole country had been in the hiring freeze. Most of them had no the idea that's going to happen economically. So the first thing they did is cut jobs, and have jobs where our platform went down to zero. Uh, but six months since then, like you know, the hiring market bounced like crazy. Joining initiatives plummeted. Like people started getting multiple offers. And referrals was the best channel for hiring. The kind of rate at which people had to hire, they really needed systems to be better. I think COVID was the best example of uh, us going to zero jobs to then going 60% in that year and then going north of 100% after that.
1: If you were to reflect on it and say, what are three things that you would do differently if you were to start all over again? Or maybe like, you know, three things that you will tell a new SaaS founder to All right. Keep in mind, what would those three things be?
0: Everybody says talk to customers. We talk to customers. We built based on what they said. So our product did not need much change, but market fit took longer because the market did not tell us that they wouldn't trust us till we got to a certain number of years in size. One thing I would absolutely look at is when you do your customer discovery, see if they are willing to put money on the table and go on a project with you if they are willing to do that then you know that you will know if your plans of 12 or 18 months are realistic second thing that I think I will do differently is focus on just one segment of customers I'm glad you know we survived COVID and we are thriving now because we serve the rich when it comes to B2B SaaS rich are people who have a lot of money and they're own large enterprises you know recession proof or risk solving the problem of churn it's always better to go focus on customers who have or the segment that has money. Third is, I would absolutely, and this is something we did well, but it took us a while to get this right, is to really sit down, knock it off, and figure out how to make your customer successful. Because if you can do that, you know, your a lot of your subsequent engines uh, would work much better. Customer success, you know, as your core DNA, is something I would do again, for sure. Whereas I see a lot of people Focus on sales and marketing DNA, and there is nothing wrong with it. But a success DNA definitely propels you far higher as
1: you grow. So, last question, Sudarshan. Is there anything that you think I should have asked you, but I missed out in our discussion? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's such a Rajan question in a podcast. <laughs> so, I do have a question for you, and I'd love to know your pants and I'm a level of Uh, But you know, yeah, go ahead. you're known for wisdom. So, what I'd love to understand, right, is the whole value SaaS movement it's so commonsensical but it almost needs a movement uh, why do you think that is there or why do you think it's necessary I mean isn't value SaaS the only way to build the right business
1: I mean I would say it's the same reason why there are uh, 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 there are peer markets and bull markets right mm-hmm. I think uh, I read this somewhere maybe in a Morgan Housel post is is that uh, initially things are very scarce things are uh, not available so what ends up happening is that you start making very prudent choices very very frugal choices and then you use uh, whatever you have and then you know try to make something more than uh, what exists there but then as uh, things start becoming prosperous then we start becoming very very lethargic and then we stop forgetting the fundamentals and then we make these uh, extraneous choices, right? So so that leads to a lot of uh, buildup or like how in the financial world it is called as, you know, a bubble gets created mm. and then the fundamentals get lost, right? And then mm. a correction happens. Now, what has happened is, is that, you know, this type of uh, boom and bust cycle and this type of bull and bear market, uh, we've had a 13-year long uh, bull market. Like in wow. you know, the last... Um, like you know bear market like you and i remember was in 2009 and that time uh, everything looked very very i don't know what is going to happen to the world like you know when the 2009 uh-huh. financial crisis happened okay. so it is a cycle right and uh, it, like where like where we are having this conversation depends on where we are in that particular cycle because then you and i have this conversation in 2009 like you know the entire world is like that's the only way to build and in right. fact you know for us as Uh, The Indian culture, we've always only thought about this as like, you know, there is only Dhanda type of business. But in the last 10 years is where a lot of easy money has come in and then people are only focused on valuation and then uh, they don't know, like, you know, this is not sustainable and people have a rude awakening. But people who have seen multiple cycles, what I find fascinating suggestion is is that second-time founders want to build value fast more than first-time founders, Right. (laughs) 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 Because they have gone through a cycle and they've like, you know, been uh, bitten by like, you know, this uh, ups and downs and they're like, no, I'm not going to do that ever. And So people who have raised series A, series B, they're like, you know, second time I'm not going to raise my series A unless I'm sure that my business is going to be like a rock chip business. At that particular point in time, I don't want to play the valuation dance. Uh, I want to find A spot where I feel that, okay, now these things are sustainable. Then now I see like a crazy growth path. Let me kind of bring in like, you know, the rocket fuel that is needed to uh, take on that uh, rocket ship trajectory. If uh, that is not going to be there, then I will navigate the business uh, a different way. So it's a function of time when we are asking this question and who is asking this question. Um, Otherwise, I mean, in a long period of time, I know like, you know, it will always revert to the mean and revert back to the age-old wisdom, right? So, hundreds of years ago, this is how it has been built. Hundreds okay. of years later also, unless you are, uh, uh, like, you know, fundamentally sound, you cannot play the valuation dance for very long. But in between, okay. we will see these things happen. So, uh, as of today, if you ask me, everybody is saying uh, value size or capital efficiency, <laughs> Jason Lemkin is saying is, uh, Battery Venture is saying it, Bessemer Partners are saying it. Uh, like, you know, two years ago, they were talking about completely different you. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the movement is, is needed when, uh, when uh, it is not uh, popular. Uh, today, value science is uh, back to being popular. You're right. Once bitten, twice shy is, is the mantra
0: that I think most second-time founders probably go through. A lot of, I think, FOMO results in people focusing on vanity. When you focus on valuation, when you focus on
1: where you get featured, I I read this uh, interesting Morgan Housel uh, tweet where he said, you know, the number one quality for an investor Mm -hmm. is his ability to deal with FOMO. Now, whether it is a founder (laughs) or an investor, right, their ability to deal with FOMO or delayed gratification is a huge function of telling how successful they will become.
0: You know, I'm trying to study how we can teach that, you know, as a parenting framework for my kid, because I totally get that if you can figure out delayed gratification, you can really do something far, far more significant.
1: Awesome. Thanks, uh, Sudarshan. Uh, Thank you so much again uh, for uh, this lovely conversation. Pleasure, Rajan. Thank you for having me and uh,
0: you know, it's always uh, thought-provoking when we engage with you. If you love this episode, Please rate, leave a review or subscribe to the Value SaaS podcast on Apple, Google
1: or Spotify.